You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. And the name's Sarah Mew. All is okay with me. I'm the executive director of Forefront New York City Church. And we are starting a new sermon series called Clarity Crisis. We just finished Holy Week and Easter, and this sermon in particular I'm going to give today will focus on signs or signs from the universe, however you phrase it, because I think paying attention to signs is, particularly as religious folks, like a main way we try to make decisions and sift through the complexity of life. So by signs, I'm talking about things like when people say, I walked out of my apartment, and then the first thing I saw was a butterfly and a leaf, and that's how I knew I should date or marry this person. Or when people say stuff like, I, you know, I was praying to God for a sign as to whether I should quit my job and pursue my passions. And then I saw the number three repeat three times in the next 30 minutes. And that's how I knew, you know, that I should quit my job. So and every time I hear these stories, I think I always wonder a little bit to myself, why, I, why do we rely on signs? Like what does, what does sign, what do signs do for us? Why do we need them? And I love signs. I, I'm, I'm a sign sign guy, so to speak. Um, but the or science guy, that was the pun. But um, but I think you know, particularly coming from a Pentecostal tradition, a lot of us know people who perhaps overly rely on signs to make even like basic decisions in life. But I would say even outside of the church, um, you know, people look for astrological signs, look up the charts, they're trying to figure out if Mercury's in retrograde. Like, there are all the ways in which I think we look for signs, whether you're sort of quote-unquote religious or spiritual or what have you. And not many people know this, but I am in New York City today because of a sign from God given to my dad. I don't know if my siblings are tuning in, hopefully my parents are not, but regardless, um, the, you know, I was, I think we, I was in high school. And my dad um, was in the midst of, with my mom of trying to start a church in Southern California, and it was not going well. So my dad prayed and asked for a sign. And God told him in a vision the word Northeast. And our dad told us, and we're like, cool, going to do my homework now. And then um, it, what, I think it was a time in January, I had just applied um, to go to go to university, I got accepted early. I put in my deposit. It was in Chicago. It was all set. And then um, in May, I, t- I was informed I got off the wait list of a school in New York City. And my parents preferred that school and wanted me to go there. But I said, I said, uh, you know what? I'm all set. I'm going to go stick to my school that wanted to go in Chicago. I, I don't want to go to the school in New York. So then my dad pulled the sign card, so to speak, where he said, okay, well. You know, you're an adult and make your own decisions. But one, I'm paying the bills. And two, uh, God told me Northeast. And I'm going to take it as a sign from God that because he got into the school in New York City, which is located in the northeastern region of the United States, that I'm going to relocate my entire family to start a church in New York City uh, this year. So, you know, I didn't really have a choice. Um, I, I switched schools and, you know. It was fine, but for my younger siblings, particularly, the transition was a lot rougher. My sister had to move in the middle of high school, my brother middle middle school, my younger sister at the end of elementary school. And I think we're all like a little bit scarred from signs from God, especially signs from God given to our dad. Um, I don't think we want to go through another sign from God. But 
you know, I say all this because I, I think I've been thinking about science for a long time. And now that I've had, we've had some distance from that whole uh, move, I think I'm able to have a little bit more empathy for my dad. You know, he was going through kind of a rough time. He had come to America to start his church. It was not working. And so he was praying, you know, like, God, I need some sort, of, some sort of direction. Do I move forward? Do I go back to Malaysia? What do I do? And I think in times in which we're sort of stressed and dealing with failure, uncertainty, I think that's, you know, when we crave some kind of certainty and that's where signs come in. Because it's a lot easier to suffer and go through stress if you know there's an endpoint and when the endpoint is. Let's say if you lose your job, as I think many of us have in this crisis, um, but if you know for sure that you're going to get a new job in 30 days, for sure, then it's like, okay, I can deal with it. Like, I'm just going to treat it as a low-spend low vacation at home. Um, but if you have no clue when your next job is coming, when your next client is coming, that's when the panic starts to set in. That's when you want to you wanna sign. So let's talk about the Bible. There are tons of sign shenanigans going on. You know, the formal words like divination, what have you. You have stories of the disciples casting lots to figure out, let's, for instance, who replaces Judas. Stories of King Saul consulting a witch to summon the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel, which is a fantastic story, really recommend reading. But the classic biblical story for me growing up about signs and what have you was the story of Gideon. So, um, I don't know how familiar people are with the story, but I'm going to give you all some context. The story of Gideon takes place in the book of Judges in the Hebrew Bible, and Things, uh, it takes place in a, in a context in which Israel is under military occupation by the Midianites. So if you go to Judges chapter 6, it will give you the context. Things are looking pretty bad. The hand of Midian prevailed over Israel, and because of Midian, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. So why are the Israelites hiding in mountains and caves? We get the answer in the next verse. For whenever the Israelites put in seed, the Midianites... And the Amalekites and the people of East will come up against them. Hopefully there's some slides showing Bible verses, but um, I'm, I'm reading them all out, so I guess no worries. Um, they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the land as far as the neighborhood of Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox a donkey. Thus Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. So imagine you're... An Israelite farmer, you're trying to plant some seeds, lay some roots, and the Midianites and Malachites would basically just come in, bring their livestock and their tents, and take over, eat your crops, trample your land, take your harvest. Your land became their land. You were basically becoming displaced from your own land, which cuts you off from your main source of livelihood. And I think this imagery of planting a seed and then someone else coming in to take it over is sort of an act expectations. But when you make plans, you invest in something, you want to lay some roots, but then something comes along and ruins it all. And it's super frustrating because it feels like you can't even control basic things, which is, you know, I think how a lot of us might be feeling right now. So now the narrative in Judges turns to Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So we learn kind of an important thing about Gideon from this detail. This guy is beating and sifting wheat, not out in the open fields, as one normally does, but inside a wine press, because if not, the Midianites would take the wheat. So Gideon's a pretty savvy guy. He's found a way to 
grow wheat, make bread, um, despite the military occupation, because he's kind of found this sort of sneaky, covert way of doing it. And from Gideon's actions, I think you get a sense of the overall climate. People are hoarding wheat, toilet paper, because of the scarcity around all of them. So the next passage, uh, we read, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Gideon answered him, um, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recount to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. So the angel comes and says, God is with you. And Gideon's immediate reaction is, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. And like, two, what you're saying is not true. Like the evidence is not there. God is not with us. God has abandoned us. We're all dirt poor. And the appearance of this angel occurs, according to Rashi, a Jewish commentator, during Passover. And so during Passover, which coincidentally just ended a few days ago, um, you know, you typically recite and talk about the stories of, you know, how what God did in the past, celebration for oppression and promises of God. Uh, you sing songs of gratitude. And Gideon is probably sitting, singing these songs and thinking, all these things are no longer true today. Like these stories of what God used to do, oh, oh, the promises of God are all like hogwash, basically. So how does the angel respond to this like accusation almost? Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might and deliver Israel from the hand of Median. I hereby commission you. Gideon responded, but sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. So basically, the angel kind of ignores what Gideon says and says, you know, I'm, I hereby commission you. I, I like how Gideon says, but sir, I, I don't know what the translation is. It feels like very like, I knight you, the knight, and the Gideon's like, sir. Um, but regardless, Gideon is saying, you know, how can it be me? I don't fit this profile, this mighty war you seem to be recruiting for. I don't have the core competencies. You know, I'm the guy that hides wheat secretly from the Mennonites in my wine press. I'm not the guy who's out there picking fights with the Mennonites. Here's how the angel responds. Uh, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike down the Mennonites, every one of them. Because he's just kind of like, you just randomly appeared in my wine press. How do I know you're not a scammer? Like how do I know you're really a messenger from God and what have you? So for the next chapter or two, we see this pattern play out. Um, God gives a sign, Gideon says, great. I want another sign. And the first sign is Gideon brings out this young goat and some unleavened kids and offers it as a gift to this kind of stranger up here in his wine press. And this angel is able to miraculously produce fire uh, from a rock to burn out the goat and cakes, kind of turning it into like a sacrificial altar type thing. And Gideon responds like, OMG, I can't believe you're actually an angel from God. I can't believe I'm standing in God's presence. Please don't kill me. Also, I'm kind of going to need like another sign before I call my men out to war. So this is what Gideon says. In order to see whether you would deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said. So this request for signs is a pretty common thing to do in the ancient Near East. Um, and I'm curious, you can Google the word divination, ancient Near East. And just as a fun fact, one of the most common methods of divination is something called exhibacy, where you sacrifice a sheep or some animal and afterwards you examine its liver. So the liver was seen as a source of blood and as a source of life. So if you find a groove in the left lobe of the liver, it indicates that God was present in the offering. And if not, then it wasn't. 
So it's not entirely random that I think Gideon chose the wool of a sheep for this experiment. It's probably just like a more budget-friendly version of this of this experiment. So Gideon goes to bed and he wakes up the next morning and voila, the fleece is super wet with water. So he gets a sign. But Gideon's kind of like a scientifically minded guy. He's like, you know, what are all the possible explanations for the sign? You know, you know, correlation, it's not causation. So he says, I want a third sign. This time I want it to be the reverse. I want the fleece to be dry and I want the ground to be wet. And God does that. Gideon wakes up, the wool thingamajig is dry, the ground is wet. So Gideon's feeling, you know, a bit more comfortable. And in general, I think in this story, he comes off as a kind of skeptical, cautious, risk-averse guy, which is, like I said, I think totally relatable. Today, we might use the phrase data-driven to describe him. And what I like about him was that he was not using signs to motivate himself to take action, like, you know, some people like my dad, but he was using signs to avoid taking action because he did not want to make a single act unless he was super sure he wasn't going to fail. Um, and I love Gideon for this because he's the most sign skeptical guy ever. And this wool incident isn't even the last sign. God gives him one more sign where Gideon sends his servant to spy on the Midianites. And one of them says, yo, I had this weird dream last night that this barley bread came and tumbled into our tent and overturned it. And his friend says, oh yeah, that bread is Gideon, son of Joash. You know, that dream means God is going to deliver us into his hands, like NBD. And only after Gideon hears that dream, where Midianite literally says, Gideon is going to win and defeat us, does Gideon signal his men to blow the trumpet and, like, start the battle. Uh, and, you know, they end up winning. Gideon, you know, the, he delivers Israel from the Midianites, becomes the new leader and judge of Israel until things go bad and a new judge comes across, comes up to power. And I actually want to pause to acknowledge here for a little bit that there's a lot of violence in the story and just generally a lot of stories in the Bible. And I don't have time to fully get into the war and the militarism. But I think one of our commenters will post a link to a podcast episode we did on our Midrash podcast, which is a public-facing podcast um, that gets into how to make sense of violence in the Bible. So kind of bracketing the violence bit for now, I want to focus on Gideon specifically. Now that we know the end of the story, you know, it's easy to sort of go back and poke fun at Gideon a little bit and say, you know, how many, uh, this makes your throat very dry. How many signs or visions do you need, Gideon? Like, obviously, this is God. You're so skeptical. You're so cautious. And I think this attitude takes as a premise that signs are predominantly a way to discern what to do, like option A or option B, and or a way to discern if such and such messages from God or if you're just talking to yourself. So what I'm saying is that we use science usually to answer one of two questions. One is, what should I do? And the second one is, is this from God? So my take on the story of Gideon, though, is that neither of these questions, these two questions, really explain what is at the heart of the signs of Gideon, the, the visions of Gideon, as it were. I think the fundamental question that Gideon is asking underneath everything is, who am I really? I want to take us to the beginning of the chapter. What, what is the first thing the angel of the Lord says? I think it's super important because it sets the tone for the rest of the interactions between the angel and Gideon. The angel does not say, you know, I'm God, I want you to do this, blah, blah, blah. Because the angel did, he would be sort of very neatly answering the two questions that I showed previously on the screen. The first thing the angel says is, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. 
And I think the reason why Gideon has so much trouble believing the angel and has asked for all these signs repeatedly is because he has a problem with the very first statement. He does not believe who God says he is. So he says, you know, how can it be me? I'm the least of my family, my clients, the weakest in the tribe. How can I be sure that you will deliver as well by my hand? How do I know it's me, the cautious, risk-averse person who doesn't feel like a hero at all, who will overthrow our oppressors? So what is driving, I think, Gideon's hesitancy in this whole saga? It's not his hesitation about God, but his hesitation about himself. God was saying, I see this in you. I see you as a mighty warrior. And Gideon responded, I don't believe it. I don't see it in myself. So I need sign, I need evidence that you really mean it. Because if I don't believe in my I don't believe in myself, but I do believe and trust you, God. So if you say I can do it, and I have all these signs to be sure that it is you, God, who is really saying this, then I can allow myself to trust myself. And this kind of interesting circular logic. And I think all of this just kind of makes me think like. I think sometimes we look outwards for signs because we're too afraid to look inwards in the mirror. I think sometimes we look for flashes in the sky, butterflies and leaves, numbers on subway ads in order to legitimize the quiet voice inside of us. That sometimes I think we only give ourselves permission to listen to ourselves when we call it sort of listening to the Holy Spirit within us. That sometimes I think when we're wrestling with discerning what the right course of action is, what we're really wrestling with is who we really are. You know, just circle back you know, to my dad and to my parents. They don't, I think, see a therapist. I don't know if they journal or engage in regular introspection. Um, but I do know for them, prayer is very much a way in which they get in touch with how they feel, the anxieties, the insecurities, their desires, and so on. So to be clear, I'm not entirely equating listening to yourself to listening to God. No, I do I think. All the voices in our heads should be listened to. Sometimes I think what we think is the voice of God is really just the voice of our ego. But what I'm saying is that if you feel you're in a period of sermon right now and you're trying to find clarity in this crisis, it might be helpful to start with being as honest as we can with ourselves to look ourselves in the mirror and say, is what is really going on the fact that I'm unsure what to do when I need guidance, I need a sign? Or is what is really going on the fact that I'm insecure about something and I'm not sure what story to believe about myself? The truth is, like, you know, I don't know what you should do with your life, who you should marry, who should make a career switch, how to pivot your freelance business, what have you. But I do know this, that what God said to Gideon will always be true for you, too, which is that the Lord is with you. I don't know what stories you're wrestling with about yourself right now, um, what your competing narratives are, but I do know that whatever it is, God is always with you. The question is, will you believe it? So let us pray. God, I thank you um, for calling us into questions that we are too afraid to ask, for showing us sides of ourselves that we're too afraid to confront. I pray that um, you make us bold in this moment of crisis to um, look into the mirror, to be honest with ourselves, and to see ourselves in the way that you see us, created in the image of God and imbued with the Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.